Well, good morning. If you've got a Bible, if you would turn to Luke chapter 20 today, uh, Luke 20, and we'll pray before we, we jump in. Uh, Father, we thank you um, that we can approach you as a holy God because of the blood of your son. Uh, thank you that, that you sent your son to come and, and die and to take on flesh, to live with us, to suffer alongside us, to endure with us and to teach us. Uh, thank you that he took on the cross to redeem us and that one day he'll come and make all things new. And so, Father, we're waiting for that day, but we pray that as we wait, that today, by your Spirit, through your Word, you would encourage us as we look to Jesus, help us to hear from Jesus, help us to be reminded of important truths or, or taught important things that will give us the strength to endure, uh, knowing that one day you will return and things will be made new. And I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in our passage today, in Luke 20, we've been in Luke for almost two years now. We think we'll wrap up this spring. Um, but we are now on Tuesday of Passion Week. So, so this is Tuesday. On Friday, it'll be the crucifixion. And Sunday will be the resurrection. Uh, this day, Tuesday, is a day of challenges and debate with, for Jesus. Um, people are challenging the knowledge of Jesus. They're challenging the authority of Jesus. They're challenging the wisdom of Jesus. They're trying to trap him in his words to get him to choose sides they're trying to frame him, and people from across the political and religious spectrum are all coming to challenge Jesus. So they're bringing a lot of questions, but they're not bringing these questions because they want to learn anything. They're coming to harass him. They're coming to trap him. And, and this is an extremely busy day. We learn about this day in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels. And, and on this day, Jesus teaches by quick count on at least 10 different topics. Um, he teaches about marriage and the afterlife, taxes and politics, his authority, his identity as the Messiah, coming judgment on Jerusalem, the end of the world, what the greatest commandment is. He pronounces judgment on the Pharisees and even talks about giving a little bit. So this is a full day of preaching to a super antagonistic crowd. He's being grilled and he's responding with perfect answers. And he's doing all of this in front of teams of brilliant lawyers who really want to nail him. So, so this day has all of the pressure of a doctoral dissertation, only if you don't do well, they execute you. And so, so again and again, Jesus on this day is displaying his superior wisdom, and his opponents just keep dropping out. They keep saying, I got nothing else to say. They keep being confounded by his words. They're unable to succeed in their challenges and, and for anyone, because Jesus, who is completely God, is also completely human, it would be exhausting to teach that much and to be grilled like that. And Jesus doesn't have to do any of this. He made these people. He doesn't answer to these people. These people answer to him. He's their maker. But like so many other things, he endured this day, and he endured it for us. And just from this one day, he left us with a body of teaching that has shaped Christian thought and has shaped how humanity functions for generations. And so in today's passage, another group of people come up to challenge Jesus, to, to challenge his theology, to test him, and this is a group called the Sadducees. Uh, we don't know much about the Sadducees. We do know that they were a class of intellectual, priestly scholars. They only accepted the first five books of the Bible as inspired by God, the books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, or the Pentateuch. Um, these people had money. They had authority. They ran the temple until 70 AD when it was destroyed. And normally, they were rivals of the Pharisees. But Jesus made strange bedfellows. And, and so now, for the first time ever, the Pharisees and the Sadducees agreed on something. They, they wanted to get rid of Jesus. So they come to challenge him on his teaching about the afterlife specifically. 
there was some controversy because the Pharisees believed in the afterlife. They believed there would be a resurrection after we die. The Sadducees did not. They all had their verses, but the Sadducees said, hey, we we look at the first five books of the Bible, and in those books, we don't see any evidence of the afterlife. In fact, we see evidence in those books that there is no afterlife, that this life is all we have. So that's their challenge. They come up in Luke 20, verse 27. It says, there came to him some Sadducees who denied that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So they bring up a passage from Deuteronomy 25 called Leveret Marriage. And the deal was that if a man was married and then that man died before he had children, then his widow was to marry his brother. And the reason they would do that is so that they could have a child and that first son would be counted as the son of the man who died. And this was important to do because in their day, land stayed in the family. And so if the family land or the family line died out, then they could lose their land. It would have been possible for this widow to be completely destitute. Uh, Women in their day were cared for by their husbands. And then in their old age, if their husbands weren't still alive, they were cared for by her adult children. And so if she didn't have any of those things, she didn't have a family line anymore, she didn't have land, she didn't have a husband, she didn't have adult children, she could very easily be destitute and alone. And so this practice was set up as a social safety net for them. And and so the Sadducees think about that and they say, well, that actually is the evidence that there is no resurrection because think of all the complications that that would create. Verse 29, they say, now there were seven brothers. So they're making up a story here. They say the first took a wife, and died without children. And the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For, for the seven had her as wife. So they say, okay, there's seven brothers, and each one marries this woman, and each one dies. So a man marries her, he dies. Next man marries her, he dies. Obviously, this is a fictional story because I'm sure that by brother number four, these guys are running for the hills. Like they're, they're not signing up for this deal, or at least they're getting really good life insurance policies at this point. But, but the Sadducees use this made-up story to try to prove that there's not an afterlife because how could you ever manage a situation like that? I mean, we all go to heaven and here's this happy reunion, but she's been married to seven different guys. Is it just going to be awkward for all eternity? Like, whose, whose wife would she be? Obviously, this life can't go on into the next. So Jesus responds, verse 34, it says, Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they're equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So Jesus replies and he says, marriage doesn't present any problem or any challenge at all to the idea of an afterlife because marriage is just for this life. One of the reasons that marriage exists is to propagate humanity. And when there's a resurrection and there's a new humanity that can't die anymore, verse 36, then you don't need marriage anymore to propagate humanity. I mean, nobody's going to die. They're they're always going to live on. And so, so he says people will be resurrected but their marriages will not. Now that means some important things. It means some of the stuff we talked about last week, that marriage is not ultimate. That marriage is a huge deal and it's a good gift from God, but it's not the ultimate relationship. We're not incomplete as Christians without it. We don't live for it. 
It's a good gift, but it's not the one true love. It's not the one truly satisfying relationship. Jesus is those things, and marriage is his good gift. And because marriage does not go on forever, because marriage is not eternal, it can't be the thing that satisfies us or fills that eternal hole in our hearts. But now that might bring up some questions. You know, I've lost my spouse. Does that mean that we won't be married in heaven? In fact, isn't a big hope that we have for Christians that we'll be reunited with each other when we go to heaven? And don't we say that at Christian funerals, that that she's in heaven with Jesus and she's reunited with her husband? Well, certainly, two Christians who die are reunited in heaven. Everything we know about the final state of things is that there are real human relationships. There are real friendships, real culture. There's real life in that place. But marriage will be no more. They're reunited, but they're not reunited as spouses. But the good news is that everything that that the New Testament teaches about what that resurrection life will be like is that it's an enhancement, that it's that things are bigger and better there. In 1 Corinthians 15, it even describes it almost like a a seed that's planted in the ground and then it produces a plant. Uh, Our lives are that seed. What we are now is that seed. And then what's resurrected in that future is, is you still see the seed in it. It still has the characteristics of that seed, but it's orders of magnitude bigger and better. And so while it's absolutely true that marriage doesn't go on into the next life, whatever that relationship is in the next life is an enhancement. Nobody's going to feel like it's a downgrade or anything like that. Um, Marriage is for this life. It gets swallowed up in the relationship that we have with Christ. That's the relationship that marriage pointed to. And so we have the ultimate fulfillment of marriage there. But we still have human relationships, including with our spouses in the afterlife. Our marriages end when this life does, but we don't. And our relationships don't. They're just changed. But this passage isn't mainly about marriage. It's mainly about the resurrection. So listen to Jesus' defense of the resurrection here. Verse 37, it says, But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed, in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question." So so Jesus quotes from their part of the Bible. He quotes from the Pentateuch. He quotes from the book of Exodus. There were no chapter and verse references then. So when he says that part about the bush, that that basically is the chapter and verse reference, which I think is how I have chapter and verse references memorized too. In Exodus, the part about the bush. And so, so Jesus points them to that part. And he says, in that part, God comes and he introduces himself to Moses, who's alive. And he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are dead. And if dead people cease to exist, then they no longer have gods. They no longer have anything. And God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, I was the God of Isaac, I was the God of Jacob. Those guys knew me when they were alive. He said, I am their God. Right now, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So right there in the Pentateuch, in your part of the Bible, the part that you say has no evidence of the resurrection, right there where God introduces himself and says who he is, that's our evidence for the resurrection. People live on. And it's a simple answer, but they're satisfied with his answer. Jesus isn't at all afraid of taking a stand on a doctrine, and he says, yes, absolutely, the dead are raised. This doctrine of the resurrection is one that the Pharisees believed in, and one that Jesus taught, and one that Christians have hoped in for centuries. 
And this is actually a doctrine that I think a lot of us are, are fairly unfamiliar with, but it's one that can give us an awful lot of hope if we'll believe it. There are a ton of really important implications of this doctrine. So, so what is this doctrine? What is the doctrine of the resurrection that he's talking about? It's a little bit different than just the idea that we go to heaven when we die. In fact, I think many of us, if we were raised in Christian homes, we, we were taught that when we die, our spirits depart from our body, and then they go to their final place, neither heaven or hell. And so, so spirits that were not redeemed go to hell to, to be punished. Spirits that were redeemed go into heaven, into the presence of Jesus in that paradise. The body dies and the body turns to dust, but then the soul or the spirit keeps going forever. And so the hope that we're presented is that our souls will be liberated from these bodies. They'll finally be free. They'll head off to the paradise that we were made for, and, and we'll finally find our ultimate state, which is a disembodied spiritual state. Now, you may have heard people say that we are just souls in earth suits, that, that the body is just this temporary thing, and our real, true existence is our souls. Um, C.S. Lewis even said, you don't have a soul, you are a soul, you have a body. And then sometimes this teaching gets mixed together with the idea that the material world is somehow bad, that the material world hinders us from being what we were made to be, and that one day when we die, we'll finally be liberated from the material creation. And so we'll go to heaven, we'll enter into eternity without bodies, we'll just be souls or spirits in this floaty, ethereal place with God, and we'll spend eternity not having any of the annoyances of bodies, not having any of the limits of the material creation and we'll be in a state that you could barely even describe as human because we're this totally other thing. We're the, this spirit that lives forever. Now, it's not that, that this scheme is, is totally untrue. Because the Bible does teach that there's an intermediate state after we die. It does teach that the second that a Christian dies, their soul doesn't go to sleep, their soul doesn't wait for anything else, they don't disappear, but the second that a Christian dies, their soul or their spirit does go into the presence of Jesus. But when it's there, it's waiting for something more. So there's an intermediate state where we're disembodied, but that's not permanent. That's just kind of like a, a little bit of a holding type of situation until we get to the final thing. So let me just show you first in Scripture this intermediate state. This, this I think, can give us an awful lot of hope when someone that we loved, that knew the Lord, dies. Um, a few defenses for it are, number one, Luke 23, 43. Jesus is hanging on the cross, and when he's hanging on that cross, there's a thief hanging on the next cross. And, and Jesus tells that thief who comes to believe in him, today you'll be with me in paradise. So that thief died, his body went into the ground, but that day he was with Jesus in paradise. He didn't have to wait for the future. It wasn't like he would enter paradise finally in the future when Jesus comes back. He went straight to heaven. So there is an existence for a spirit apart from a body in that paradise state. In 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul talks about this. He says, yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So for Paul, to be away from the body is to be present or at home with the Lord. You can't be away from the body as a Christian without being present with the Lord. So that's a, real, that's a reality. Paul, again, in Philippians 1.21 says, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. 
So for Paul, to depart from this body is to be with Christ. This means that when a Christian dies, their spirit goes to heaven right away. So the people that we have loved, that we have lost, that know the Lord, are with him. They're in an existence now where there's no more pain, there's no more suffering, there's conscious existence, they are in paradise, they are in heaven, um, there's no more sorrow, and their existence is so good that if we were to come to them and say, hey, we, we can give you an opportunity to come back to this life, they would, without a doubt, say, hard pass. Like, this, is, this is way better here. But as you read through the New Testament, you see that the hope that Christians had for the future was not that in the very end they would finally be freed from this old earth and they'd be free from these old bodies and be liberated spirits like they were meant to be, but their hope is resurrection of the body. They expected that this body will die and go into the ground, our spirit will go into the presence of the Lord, and then one day at his return, just like Jesus rose from the the grave, we will rise from the grave too in our bodies and our eternal state will be a material state. This is taught all over the place. This is John 5, uh, 28 and 29. Jesus said, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Those who are in the tombs come out. In Colossians 1.18, the passage we looked at last week, Paul said, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. So Jesus came out of the grave. Jesus resurrected on Easter, but Paul says he's the firstborn. He's the first one. And firstborn implies that there are others born, that there will be others who come out of the grave. And then 1 Corinthians 15, nearly the whole chapter is unpacking this reality. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So Jesus rose first, and when he returns, those who belong to Christ rise as well. If you skip down to verse 51, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and and mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So God is going to do to his whole creation and to all Christians what he did to Jesus on Easter. There's coming a day of resurrection when our spirits will be reunited with our bodies and when all of creation is resurrected. And so the future, the ultimate future for redeemed humanity is not floating in the clouds. It's not playing a spiritual harp with spiritual wings and a diaper. The the ultimate future for us 
is us being on a new earth in a new body, and none of it will be subject to corruption or to entropy or to death anymore. It'll all live on. Okay, so why is this important? You know, is this just so that we can kind of like, well, actually, our friends and say, well, heaven doesn't last forever and, and the new creation's what lasts forever, or so we can win like theological debate points? Well, hopefully not, um, because this is actually hugely significant. And, and let me just give you a bunch of reasons that this doctrine of the resurrection is a really significant one for us. Um, the first is that this is a very unique feature of Christianity. Um, there have always been a lot of religions that teach that when we die, our spirits depart and they go to their ultimate state, that the spirits go to the next level and that our ultimate state is freedom from the body, not a, a resurrected body. Lots of religions taught that. Lots of philosophers taught that. Plato taught that view of the afterlife, that when we die, our spirits live on. Aristotle came along and he said, well, that can't be the case because the soul can't survive without the body. So when we die, it's basically like, you know, the lights are turned out and, and that's the end. But Christianity came along and said, no, Plato's definitely right. The soul lives forever. And Aristotle is wrong that we just disappear, but, but what he did get right is that that separation of soul and body is not a feasible arrangement for eternity because our souls are too connected to our bodies. And so while Aristotle was right that those two shouldn't exist separately, they do exist separately for a while, but one day our bodies will rise and we will have that future where we have a very material existence without any of the flaws of this material existence forever. So it's a unique feature to Christianity it's also a promise that justice will come and things will be set right. And there are all kinds of prayers all throughout the Bible that God would set things right with the world. And these are prayers that we pray too. And if our hope is just that God's going to wipe out the world and give us a spiritual existence someday, then those prayers will never be answered. If my wife comes to me and says that the sink is leaking and my solution to that is to burn down the house... I've technically fixed the leak. Um, like the, the leak's not going on anymore, but I haven't really fixed anything. That wasn't the solution that she was looking for. And through the ages, Christians have been crying out for Jesus to make things new. They've been crying out for him to fix what's broken in the world. They've been crying out for him to right the wrongs and to bring justice. Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He didn't teach us to pray, get us out of here. He taught us to pray, come back, come fix it, come do on earth what you're doing in heaven, make it like it should be. And the fact that creation is going to be resurrected means that God is not going to be giving up on creation, but he's going to be setting it right. So justice will be done. Those prayers will be answered. And this doctrine's also been a really strong weapon uh, in, in the hands of Christians who've had to stand up against injustice and stand up against tyrants throughout the ages. Because a brutal leader, they always have death as a threat. They can always say, do what I tell you to do. And in the end, if someone doesn't do it, they can kill them. And that's the biggest fear. That's the biggest threat. That's the end. That means that that leader wins. But what does that leader do if death isn't the end? They lose their biggest weapon. They lose the big threat. 
The resurrection comes along and it takes the sting out of death so that tyrants can't win. And tyrants would stay awake at night racking their brains. What could I possibly do to get the Christians to do what I want? They're not afraid of the same thing everybody else is afraid of. And that's why 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 54, where, where Paul is talking about death, can be read as, as Paul mocking or taunting death. Listen to it in that light. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? So it's like he walked out on the field of battle and he just started taunting this enemy. Here's this massive enemy that nobody can defeat. Nobody can defeat death, but now it's been defeated. And so while people can scare him and say, we'll kill you, he says, is that all you got? While people can live in fear of death, he says, we don't. What else you got, death? Oh, you're going to put us in the ground for a little while and then we'll depart and be with Jesus and then one day rise again incorruptible? That's really not a threat. So he can mock death and taunt it. And when a Christian martyr was, was martyred in the first century, for example, it would have looked to many people like that tyrant had won, but the Christians knew that, that he hadn't. The death isn't the end. And so this doctrine made Christians into a fearless people who could taunt death, who could spike the ball in the face of death because that enemy is defeated by Christ. So even death doesn't mean that we've lost. God will set things right. Evil will not prevail. Even the powerful who can put people to death with a sword will not win in the end because nobody ultimately gets away with things. Justice is done. And God will do on earth as it is in heaven, just like we've been praying for 2,000 years. So God will win. So this promised resurrection, it's a unique feature in Christianity. It's a promise that real justice will be done on earth. And also it affirms the goodness of creation. And we read the Bible and the Bible starts with God creating everything. And on those creative days, he looks at the things that he makes and he calls it good. He, he made it all, there was, there was evening, there was morning, and God looked at it and said it was good. It was good, it was very good. He pronounces all those things good. But it's not uncommon for us, even as Christians, to believe sometimes that the material world is bad. We can start to believe that things that are spiritual are more pure than things that are material. We can think that the fact that something is created and that that thing is other than God makes it evil. And so we really have a hard time sometimes making sense of things because we, we've got this hope that our ultimate existence will be an existence free from things, free from stuff, free from the material world. And so we have a really awkward relationship with the material world and we don't know what to do with it. And we can get really guilty feeling for enjoying things or having things. There really isn't an earthly pleasure that doesn't have a Christian attached to it renouncing it. I'm saying that that thing's bad, you shouldn't enjoy that. I mean, every year you'll hear at Christmas time the Christian guilt trip delivered for when we buy gifts for people that we love. You know, we're going out doing this legitimately good thing. We're, we're buying things and giving them to people we love, and they're Christians standing by saying, you shouldn't do that, it's materialistic. And it's true that we can make idols out of things, we can misuse things, we can put things in the wrong place in our lives, but Jesus came to redeem us, to save us, to allow us to be born again spiritually, and to redeem the good material world. So that means the right enjoyment and the right use of the material world isn't bad. And while anything can be misused, anything can become God, God has made stuff 
God's made our senses. God has made pleasures as good things. And they have places in the Christian life, and they'll be redeemed to have a place in God's good future. Listen to how 1 Corinthians 6 handles material stuff. Uh, Verse 17, he says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share. So he warns us, we don't set our hopes on things. We share our things generously, but we do that because those things are good and provided by God to be enjoyed. Sin is not in the stuff. The stuff isn't evil. Otherwise, God wouldn't tell us to share it. We don't share bad things with each other. That's why we're wearing masks. We're trying not to share bad things. But, but he comes along and he says, we, we share the good things that God's given us because they're good. So that means that there's not guilt in the stuff. It should free us. It should free us so that without guilt, we can enjoy a good meal with friends and order that dessert. Without guilt, we can enjoy the beauty in creation or in art, even if that art isn't explicitly Christian art. Without guilt, we can enjoy good music or a good movie. We can enjoy the pleasures that God has made. We can make love to our spouses. We can play the sports. We can plant the gardens. We can take the naps. We can go for the bike ride. We can enjoy the vacation at the beach. You can buy the house where you'll work for the thriving of your family and your neighborhood. You can take the promotion. You can take the raise. You can get married. You can have the kids. You can start the business and not feel like you're doing anything that's wrong or unspiritual. Sometimes our view of holiness is that we're only holy when we're giving things up. That God wants us to make sacrifices, and that's the only dimension of holiness we have. And it's true. Scripture does call us to make sacrifices. It does call us to take up our cross. It calls us to take on pain for the good of others. And we certainly do that, and that's a holy thing to do. God occasionally does call his people to fast. But as you read through the Old Testament, there was one fast day in the entire year. And then there were an awful lot of feast days and celebrations. So we need to stop thinking that holiness is only found in what we give up. We need to stop thinking that holiness is only found in our Gnostic ascetic restrictions. Because holiness can be found in the feast, too. God gives us all good things to enjoy, which means that he wants us to enjoy them. That guilt is not in the stuff. God's not a stingy, withholding God who wants us to always be gaunt and hungry and pleasureless, so we don't need to feel guilty about the right use and the right enjoyment of creation. God didn't make the material world just so we could be tempted by it. He made the whole thing to be good. And sometimes I think we like to invent guilt so that we can attach it to things that we don't need to be guilty about and create a little bit of a smokescreen to keep us from dealing with our real guilt. So we'll talk about eating a brownie, like that's a guilty pleasure. But then our gossip habit is completely ignored. I mean, eat the brownie. There's no guilt in that. Eat two and give thanks, and, and it's made holy by the word of God and by the thanksgiving that you're giving. Keep going. That's a good thing. But deal with the gossip. We, we tend to think that sin is in the stuff, the guilt is in the stuff, but it's not. 
So this doctrine, it's a unique feature in Christianity. It's a promise that justice will be done and things will be set right. And also it, it affirms the goodness of creation in a way that frees us from pressure and frees us from despair. These are two different mistakes that we can make when it comes to, to dealing with the brokenness in the world. One is that we can live under constant pressure, like it all depends on us to fix everything that's wrong out there. And, and there's almost never a social ill that somebody isn't crying out and saying, where is the church in this? Why isn't the church fixing this? And we can feel this pressure all the time that if there's anything wrong with the world, we're going to be joyless because our job was to fix all that. Well, the doctrine of the resurrection is the reminder that the ultimate fixing of all that is Jesus when he returns. That he'll come and make all things new. So as much progress as we'll make and as many good things as we do, ultimately we won't be the ones who usher in the final fix. Jesus is that one. But the other error is that we can start to despair of making any efforts because of that. We probably all experience this where we, we try to do something good you know, in the community, try to do some kind of ministry, and it just seems like it doesn't work, or it's futile, or it just feels like a nonstop struggle. It seems like it's not going anywhere. It seems like the whole thing doesn't work. And we can say to ourselves, it's just not worth trying at all, that I need to just sit back and wait for Jesus to return and resurrect everything. But we're actually free from that kind of thinking by the doctrine of the resurrection. This kind of leads into the next point, that the doctrine of the resurrection means that our efforts are not in vain. And I take this from 1 Corinthians 15, the passage that we read a few minutes ago, where Paul spends the chapter teaching about this doctrine of the resurrection, and then he ends with a big therefore in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 58. He says, you're going to resurrect, you're going to rise from the grave, therefore, my beloved brothers, just go up on a hill and wait for the rapture. Therefore, quit. Quit trying. Don't try to fix anything. Jesus is coming back to fix any, everything. He doesn't say that. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So somehow this doctrine of the resurrection should encourage us to keep doing work because it reminds us that the work that we do in the Lord isn't a vain thing. It does work in the end. Now, this is really different from the way that we measure things. We tend to think that the good things we do are worth it if they pay off and we can see how they pay off in this life. So if I tell somebody about Jesus and they come to believe, it was worth it. If they don't, then the effort was wasted. If I help somebody financially and they get back on their feet and they don't need help anymore and they're able to, to thrive and help others, then it was definitely worth it. But if they continue to struggle and they continue to need, it, the whole thing was wasted. Or if I start a church or a small group or a ministry and it grows and thrives, then it was worth it. But if it fizzles out and dies, then the whole thing was a waste. Or if I raise my kids to know and follow the Lord and all the effort that that entails, but then they wander, then I wasted those years. But Paul says, don't think like that. He says, because of the resurrection, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Not because your labor always pays off, not because your labor is going to totally fix and change the entire world, but because all of our labor somehow gets resurrected. So that means that somehow, and I don't know how this is all going to work, but somehow when creation is resurrected, our efforts somehow get resurrected too. 
Because somehow the resurrection has to mean that our labor is not in vain. So that means that everything that we do in the Lord, everything that's done for Jesus somehow, somehow gets resurrected. It means that every moment of investing in your children, the song that you write and nobody ever hears you sing it, every act of love, every bit of gratitude expressed, every effort to share the gospel, every act of integrity in the workplace, every sacrifice, every gesture of care and concern, every prayer, every biblical teaching, all will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into that new creation. Somehow. So when we're doing good works and they can feel kind of futile and, we can, and they can feel kind of temporary, we're not supposed to look at the good works we do like we're making a painting that's going to be burned up really soon anyways. But we look at the work we do as work that we do that will somehow be resurrected in part of that new world. One author put it this way. He said, what you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable until the day that we get to leave it behind altogether. So this means that the work that we do in the Lord that doesn't seem to accomplish or change anything is still worth it. So doing that mundane job that feels useless every day can be labor in the Lord. Caring day in and day out for a family member with Alzheimer's who won't be able to pay you back. Those efforts get resurrected. Care for the severely disabled child where sometimes you feel like I could never change anything. He says it's not in vain. Everything that we do in faith and hope and love, even if it doesn't produce anything that we can measure in this life, will be resurrected. So that's an encouragement for us to keep going, to keep doing, to keep trying. This also means that we're wrong to criticize the small efforts of other people at doing good. We live in a really pharisaical, legalistic age where we love to throw flags, we love to fault finds. Why are you praying when there's so much work to do? Why are you helping with that when there's so much other work to do over here? Your efforts are small, your efforts are misplaced, your efforts are failing. But people who believe in the resurrection can't criticize seemingly dying efforts. No labor in the Lord is in vain. Jesus didn't criticize small and non-world-changing efforts. Listen to what he said in Matthew 10, 42. Whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So if there's a reward coming for giving a cup of cold water, aren't we criticizing what God rewards when we criticize labors in the Lord that don't seem to bear fruit? Let's not be those people. Let's not waste our time bashing small efforts. Let's not waste our time criticizing efforts that we think are misplaced because God has a lot of people in the world with different passions and gifts and stories and backgrounds and callings. 
Let's just be happy that all kinds of good is being done by all kinds of people in all kinds of places, and let's not give another minute to listening to the constant critics that will never be satisfied and who make a lifestyle of criticizing what Jesus will spend eternity rewarding. And knowing that we're rewarded for those efforts somehow, that they all pay off in the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15 says that's what makes us steadfast. That's what allows us to keep going. Just as death isn't the worst thing for a Christian, neither is the death of our efforts. So this doctrine of the resurrection is a unique feature of Christianity. It's a promise that justice will be done, that God will set things right. It affirms the goodness of creation. It frees us from both pressure and despair. And it means that none of our efforts are wasted. So this is really good news. Good news that the dead will rise is good news that for 2,000 years Christians have clung to. This is the good news that we preach, that we can rise again to that eternity. But notice in some of these passages we read, Jesus talks about those who attain to it or who are worthy of it. Man, who's worthy? We read that and we hear that and it's like, I mean, that's great news, but it's got to be great news for other people because who's worthy to rise from the dead? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, the good news we preach is that, that Jesus will give us his worthiness. Jesus, the son of God, took on human flesh. He took on a real body and then he went to the cross where he dealt with our biggest problem. And our biggest problem wasn't that we're part of the material world. Our biggest problem is that we had sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We deserved God's wrath. And so when Jesus was put to death on that cross, he put to death our sin. He defeated death, which was the consequence of sin. And then he rose again, not free from the material world, but in a real body, promising that everyone who would hope in him and trust in him and believe in him for salvation will rise again like he did. And so resurrection hope is for those who know him. And we know him not by striving, not by working, not by doing a whole bunch of good things, We know him by turning from sin and unbelief and turning to trust in what he accomplished for us on the cross. We believe in him, we trust in him, we hope in him. And for all of those who do, just like he rose from the grave, we will rise, our efforts will rise, creation will rise. And for all eternity on a real earth, in real glorified bodies, we'll be worshiping him, we'll be engaging in culture together, We'll have relationships with one another without sin, without sorrow, and without pain. That's where we're headed. So let's pray. Well, Father, you know our inmost thoughts, and so you know the doubts that constantly shake us about these things. And they show up in all kinds of ways. We know that we'll have those new glorious bodies someday, but then we get really quickly undone when our earthly bodies fail us. We know that our efforts will resurrect, but we become so discouraged and we quit. We know that we have time without limit on a new creation, but still we live here like you only live once and we have a limited amount of time and we panic to get it all in. So we confess to you all of our failures to believe this. And Jesus, we thank you that you're the resurrection and the life. Thank you that you entered this world of of suffering and death. 
and you gave yourself over into the hands of those who hated you and wanted to trap you and were determined to kill you. But thank you, Jesus, that even in your darkest moments, you fully fixed your eyes on the joy that was set before you. That after the resurrection, you'd possess us as your people forever. You never wavered. You never wavered in your desire to have us as your inheritance or in your faith that the Father would accomplish this through your death and resurrection. Thank you for enduring through deep suffering so that we could become like you and be with you forever. And Holy Spirit, we just pray that you drive these truths into our heart. When we labor hard and we don't see any fruit, teach us to wait patiently for you, the God of the harvest. When we feel false guilt, remind us of the truth. When we set our hopes in the things that we have right now in this life, free us from that. Remind us in all of our trials and all of our difficulties to fix our eyes on that future. To fix our eyes on what's stored up for us in Christ in a place where nothing will perish or spoil or fade. Thank you that death has been defeated and that there's coming a day when it will be no more. So Jesus, come quickly. Bring in that day, bring in your kingdom. We want to be free from sin. We want to enjoy you with sinless hearts. We want to enjoy your creation in the right way without worshiping it. And we need you to come and make all things new. So we pray that you would. And as we wait for that day, remind us of this truth and make us fearless people of joy because we believe in the resurrection. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.